Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like to begin today by speaking out against an exegetical fallacy. Uh, Exegetical fallacy, kind of a false exegetical move that I've encountered many times. And I think this is an important fallacy to watch out for because every time it's happened, it has come from the mouth of a Missouri Synod Lutheran. And this is the exegetical fallacy of interpreting Ephesians 2, verse 10, in light of John 6, 29. Have you ever encountered this fallacy? Well, usually the context is, is you have a group of Christians talking about sanctification and the new life and good works. And there'll be one Christian who's bothered by this because, well, on the one hand, we know that good works are not necessary for salvation. And so the question is, well, then why does Jesus and the apostles exhort us to do good works if they're not necessary for salvation? Well, then we talk about the place of good works in the Christian life, and then somebody will inadvertently call attention to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. God's gift it is, not by works so that no one can boast. Then they proceed to verse 10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. And everything seems to be explained, and then there's that one guy who's, eh. But you have to go to John 6, 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in the one that he sent. End of story. I don't know, have you ever encountered this? I remember encountering this as a little boy and thinking that this was the proper way for Scripture to interpret Scripture. This is what my dad and the other adult Lutherans were doing. I used it in high school against my Roman Catholic friends. I would quote Ephesians 2, verses 8 at 9 and them. They would respond with Ephesians 2, verse 10, and I would respond with John 6, 29. This is the work of God that you believe. That's all God expects. I heard it from students when I was a student here from people in my parish when I was a pastor, from other pastors, and even most recently in a Bible study in the area, uh, the topic of good works came up because we were reading Galatians chapter 5, and someone mentioned uh, Ephesians 2 verse 10, and a, a very thoughtful gentleman, otherwise, he rose his hand, he said, well, I was told that to understand that we need to go to John 6, and you know, this is the work of God that we believe in Jesus, and he said it with this kind of smile and this kind of moving of his hands that kind of made me think that almost every other time I've seen people do this, there always seems to be this kind of dismissive tone, John 6, this is the work of God that we believe. And then a shrug of their hands, and what they're dismissing, I guess, is, well, Ephesians 2 verse 10. I mean, the idea is God has prepared good works for us to walk in, and what are those works, plural? Well, we just make them singular, just believe in Jesus. And often the explanation is, well, you know, we're all sinners. Uh, Our good works are nothing but dirty rags. I mean, we don't have the Holy Ghost. Well, they never say that, but uh, you might as well wonder why not. Uh, It's kind of we're incapable of good works, and so all God expects is that we just simply believe in Jesus, and uh, that settles the whole problem. And for me, well, this exegetical fallacy uh, is the fallacy I like to call the I'll destroy your fence and drive off and not take responsibility for it because, hey, I believe in Jesus, exegetical fallacy. You may be wondering, what is that about? Well, we had a visitor to our church, a guy in an RV, who asked if he could park in our parking lot. We said yes, and he ran an extension cord through our chain link fence to an external power source, and he tied 
his cord onto the chain link fence. He was retired and he said he liked to cruise around and visit Missouri Synod churches. I won't say what his previous profession was, maybe you can guess. But during the Bible study on the Sermon on the Mount, this guy was very annoyed. While we were reading the text, before I even had a chance to misapply and do anything wrong, we're reading Jesus saying, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. Uh, let, your good wor- let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And during, while that's being read, this guy was just like sighing and moaning and rolling his eyes. And, you know, and so he started talking loudly to the people around him. So I said, hey, sir, you have something to say? And he's all, no, oh, no, no, you just go ahead. But he kept doing it. So I said, you have something to say? And he said, no, 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 you just go ahead. So finally, third time I said, do you have something to say? And he's all, well, you're telling these people they got to be salt and light. And I said, well, not really. I'm, we're reading where Jesus says that they are salt and light. And he's all, well, you can't exhort people to be salt and light. You can't tell them to do good works. You're wasting your breath. And then someone said, so is Jesus wasting his breath? And he said, ah, he said, the Sermon on the Mount is all second use of the law. That's all it is. It's just showing us what we're not. We're not salt. We're not light. We don't do good works. And he said, I used to tell my people this one thing, John 6, this is the work of God that you believe in the one that he sent. And uh, then someone quoted Ephesians 2, verse 10, and he said, oh, Scripture interprets Scripture. John 6, 29 trumps Ephesians 2, verse 10. And, you know, it didn't get violent. No fists were thrown. Everything seemed to be peaceful. Uh, we wrapped up the Bible study. He left, seemingly in good grace. My janitor came in and said, hey, pastor, come out here. And we walked into the parking lot, and right where the RV was, two sections of our chain link fence had been torn off the posts. <clears throat> Well, I was thinking, well, this guy drove off and forgot to untie his electric cord, and then he realized what happened, put the electric cord back in, and then left and didn't tell us about it. But I was thinking, no, don't be judgmental. It was windy. Maybe the wind did it. Right. <clears throat> but then our neighbor next door came out, and he said, uh, hey, Pastor Lewis, you know that guy in the RV? Well, he drove off and didn't, you yeah, know, okay. And I looked at my head elder and my uh, congregational vice president, and we began to laugh our heads off because, well, that made sense. I mean, Seventh commandment, show respect for your neighbor's property. Ah, sure, God wants you to do that, but he knows you can't. Hey, this is the work of God. Just believe in Jesus. <clears throat> and so my president said, maybe we ought to sue this guy. The janitor said, no, Paul said not to sue other Christians. He wasn't there at the Bible study. And we said, well, sure, Paul said that. But I mean, we are sinners. We can't help but sue other Christians, you know. <clears throat> But then my elder said something very interesting. He said, you know, what bothered me wasn't so much that he destroyed our fence, but that he used faith in Jesus as a reason not to listen to Jesus. In other words, he said what was really disturbing is this guy said, because I believe in Jesus, I don't have to listen to the Sermon on the Mount or whatever else Jesus says. And so really, I guess you might say this fallacy is the, I believe in Jesus, therefore I don't have to listen to Jesus, exegetical fallacy. And notice how it makes nothing of Ephesians 2 verse 10. But probably even worse is what this does to John 6.29. For Jesus does tell the crowds, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one that he sent. And what my elder said is, it doesn't look like there's much faith if you have this faith and then you feel that you never have to listen to Jesus ever again. What is a faith in Jesus that won't listen to Jesus? Yes, even when Jesus exhorts doesn't seem to be much faith at all. As if believing in Jesus is a simple ascent in knowledge, yeah, with a shrug, God sent down his son to give life to the world, sure. That's not the faith that Jesus is talking about. Well, this is an exegetical fallacy. 
so please don't do it. And be mindful if you hear anybody else do it. Paul in Ephesians 2 is not talking about the same thing that Jesus is talking about in John 6. Ephesians 2, Paul is talking to the saved about the new life. In John 6, Jesus is talking about, well, the proper response to Jesus. The proper response to him multiplying the loaves and feeding that crowd. The proper response to his teaching. The proper response to the proclamation of Jesus today. What does God want? Well, he wants you to believe in Jesus. If you want to go to Paul, then probably the expression, the obedience of faith in Romans 1.5 is more of a parallel to John 6. The proper response to the proclamation of Jesus and what he did, what God wants you to do is that you believe in him. And if you keep reading, yes, this work of God indeed is God's work. No one can come to Jesus unless God the Father gives them, unless the Father brings them. But nevertheless, this is the proper response to the gospel, that you believe in Jesus, the one whom the Father sent to restore life to this world. This faith is a faith that the people in this story ultimately are unwilling to give. They're impressed by the feeding of the loaves. They're impressed by the fact that Jesus disappeared and they didn't see him get into the boat. We know that he walked across the sea. They know something funny's happened. They're impressed. They want to seek Jesus out, and so they do and find him. But they challenge him with the fact that, you know, Moses did a greater thing. He fed our fathers 40, day, 40 years every day, and you fed us one day. What work are you going to do? Jesus then talks about the work of giving them the life from the Father. But ultimately, when he calls himself the bread of life, they are unimpressed and scandalized because the faith Jesus talks about is a faith that comes to him. It's a faith that eats his flesh and drinks his blood. No mere shrug, no mere assent to this propositional truth. This is a faith that comes to him, eats, drinks, and remains in him. Indeed, a faith that can only come when the Father gives it. And so the story ends where these people who have sought Jesus out are no longer with him. Well, they weren't looking for him for the right reason. They weren't impressed by the greater thing that Jesus says he will do, which is to bring life to this world. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. And guess what? You're going to die too. You right here are going to die. Who is going to save you from that? And we know why we die. Because we're in a, a world subject to sin and death and futility. Because that life that God gave our parents has been lost. That spiritual, eternal, immortal life. Faith looks to Jesus as the one that the Father sent to restore this life and give it back. This is what Jesus says he will do, and we know in the Gospel of John that this is what Jesus does. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep so that he can take it up again. The kernel falls into the ground and dies so that it will not remain alone but produce a crop. Jesus goes to the cross. He dies, is buried. He rises again. 
and then breathes the Spirit, breathes that new life upon his disciples. And the faith that Jesus is talking about here is the faith that knows that Jesus is the one the Father he sent to restore to us that eternal life. That in him we have that life now, and in him we have the promise that on the last day he will raise our dead bodies up from the grave, that we will live with him forever. And you, brothers and sisters, you are the ones God has called and to whom he has given this life. Don't ever treat this faith in life as something you can simply shrug off. Yes, because you have this life, Jesus can tell you, love one another as I have loved you, so must you love one another. But of course, because you have this life, he can exhort you. Jesus has given you this life. And so, come to him. You will never hunger. Come to him. You will never thirst. Come to him, and you live. And may the peace that passes all understanding keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.